you're on the panel on RNZ National. Wallace Chapman with you this afternoon. Nice to be here. We have Anna Dean and Guy Williams today. Now, there are four confirmed cases of meningitis in the Canterbury region so far this year. Two of those have been admitted to hospital. And a couple of uh, very important issues have been raised. First, concerns about how to obtain the vaccine itself and awareness of meningitis itself. Yesterday, the Meningitis Foundation issued a statement urging all eligible people, especially those in halls of residence and in their first year of study to seek vaccination for both meningococcal B and the ACW and Y strains of the disease. Meningococcal disease is uh, fairly uncommon, but it can be incredibly devastating, indeed fatal. Jared Rushton is the chair of the Meningitis Foundation. Jared, kia ora. Kia ora. Thanks for being with us on the subject. And it's also a very personal issue, Jared. You lost your daughter to meningococcal disease. Yes, we lost our, our beautiful 16-year-old uh, Courtney in 2014 to the disease. Um, so uh, since then, um, we've been strong advocates for raising awareness around the disease. And um, and uh, more recently, we've uh, fronted a petition to Parliament to have uh, all New Zealanders protected free of charge for both strains by the time they're the age of 16. Yeah. And on that awareness, Stuart, let's talk about that first, because what do you think is the awareness of meningitis right now? You might go to varsity, I can recall being in a hall of the residence, and, you know, it, it, it wasn't something that really was routinely discussed. No, and this is a disease that, that we, we keep getting warned by immunologists and, and medical professionals as an outbreak, and it is imminent. It's a matter of um, when and not if. Um, the disease itself um, moves very quickly, so so that's the awareness. Um, there's an underlying factor in, in in all cases, just about all cases we see of meningitis, and that's that people are simply not aware that they need the full range of vaccines to cover them, mm. and that's that's what we've been advocating for with. Health New Zealand and Pharmac for the last six months saying that, that any rollout of any program needs to have a comprehensive awareness program with it too. Otherwise, we'll, we'll see what, uh, we'll have the same results as what we had last year and, uh, and see that we had $1.7 million worth of ACYW vaccines wasted um, because they expired. Yeah, indeed. And so on that, just that practical stuff there, um, what do you need to do? How far apart do you need to have your shots? When, where? Explain for us. Well, at the moment, I mean, there's, there's a new rollout of the MEN-B and it's the same, it mirrors the ACWY, so that covers um, infants up to 12 months and, uh, and there's a catch-up for the 13 to 5 year, 30 months old to 5-year-olds, um, which is great. Um, and then 13 to 25, our adolescents, um, which is our other high-risk group, they're eligible for both those vaccines um, if they're in first year of halls of residence or boarding school, um, barracks or prisons. So it's pretty selective, that one there. <clears throat> We're not sure why. Right. Yes, let's bring our panel, uh, Jared. Uh, Anna, Dean, what thoughts, comments, questions do you have on this uh, issue? 
Yeah, my main question was how do young people go about getting the vaccine? Do they have to make an appointment with their GP or what is the process for anyone listening who might have young people in their life? Yes, they have to make a... a um, sorry, my voice. It's okay, Joe. They have to make an appointment with their GP. Mm-hmm. Just, just, yeah, just hold that uh, thought, uh, Jared. We'll get to, to have a, a little glass of water there and we'll come back to you. Uh, we are talking to Jared Rushton, Chair of the Meningitis Foundation. We're talking really about <coughs> uh, concerns about how to obtain the vaccine and awareness of meningitis itself uh, and um, really uh, quite a few holes in this. Jared, let's come back to you. You want to um, respond to uh, Anna Dean there? Uh, yeah, but look... <coughs> They go to their, um, their, their, their GP and, um, and it is free, but we have, um, we have uh, struggled recently with supply. Um, this was an issue we raised with Te Whara last Thursday at a meeting, and they assured us that there was plenty of supply. But um, um, in talking to both um, Canterbury Universities yesterday, Lincoln and <coughs> Canterbury, they were struggling with supply. Also, some of the GPs in Canterbury were struggling with supply as well, and and we finally managed to get some um, um, some vaccines to Canterbury University and Lincoln College about three o'clock yesterday, which is really uh, really disappointing. Goodness me! And why is that? Why is this um, struggle with supply? We don't know. We were we were given an assurance, as I said last week, from Tafarawara that that there wasn't a supply issue, and um, and we were horrified to find out that there was. An issue yesterday. Um, you know, how would you feel if you were a parent? Um, and we had a number of instances of parents um, going to their GP to get um, get their young ones vaccinated or their teenagers vaccinated, and being told there's no vaccine. So, yeah. how, how would you feel if you were a parent that that happened to when you your child was at um, at varsity, um, then uh, was unlucky enough to contract the disease and 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 sadly passed away? You know, this is mm. this is. Um, incomprehensible really in this day and age. It's a simple process of logistical um, uh, distribution, you know, that shouldn't be happening. Guy Williams. Yeah, yeah, Jared, what a fantastic uh, job you're doing to get the message out and what a fantastic uh, way to honour the life of your, your daughter. I remember when I was in high school in the early 2000s, it was the huge outbreak where we had to go from the rugby team having five drink bottles to all of us to having 25 drink bottles, one for every separate person. Yeah. Um, I'm a 35-year-old male. Should I, be, um, should I be getting the vaccine or should I be holding back for people more in need or should everyone be getting this? Everyone should be getting this guy. I mean, it can strike anyone, um, but our, our, our two most vulnerable uh, age groups are infants and our adolescents, but, but it can strike anyone. We've got... We've got cases of 60-year-old guys that have died, you know, within 24 hours. And this is the problem with this disease. It can kill within 24 hours. It is preventable, but it can kill within 24 hours. And so because the disease moves so quickly, that's why we need to protect our whānau because often treatment isn't an option because it moves so quickly. Yeah, yeah and, and young... Keep going. Keep going. I was just going to say, young people, I've noticed... Um, Share vapes is, is is that a way to contract meningitis? Is sharing vapes dangerous? Yes, that's that's a real concern. I mean, obviously, um, it's it's spread with uh, with bodily fluid contact and, and through the nasal passage. So, smoking, sharing drink bottles, as you said, guy, 
uh, you know, I've, I've been involved in that through the years with rugby as well. And, and smoking and uh, sharing drinks and, and, and vaping is a real a real concern because, you know, you only need to, to go past a, a bus stop and you see all these young kids out there or in, in, in groups in town sharing vapes. It's, it's really common. Yeah, a bit of response on this uh, panel. Just a quick comment, says one, after listening to this. My first son at the age of 20 months died from this awful disease back in 1992, ripping through his little body from first symptoms to death within four hours. Thank you for highlighting how important it is to be vaccinated. It wasn't available then, unless the vaccine needs to be available, especially in these hothouse uh, environments. Um, finally, Jared, for those who are wanting to know this afternoon and perhaps don't know, um, what, what to look for? What are some of the symptoms we might look for? Well, they're, they're flu-like symptoms, but, um, you know, sensitivity to light. Um, the old, um, you know, the, the rash comes out, but sometimes that doesn't come out until it's too late in, in some of the things. Soreness in there, because I said sensitivity to light. General uh, flu-like symptoms, and that's the problem, that, that some mm. of these young people, it just it, it may seem like a hangover, and, and that's, what's, that's what's happened in a lot of situations, that they, they think they've just got a hangover, and, and suddenly it's got a hold of their body and it's too late. So speed is of the essence. If in doubt, go to our, the meningitis Facebook page or website, check out the symptoms. If in doubt, get medical advice. That is what we think. First thing is, get yourself protected. But if you're in doubt, get medical advice. Great stuff, Jared. Thanks for being on the panel with us. Yeah, thanks for raising awareness. It's really important. Jared Rushton, Chair of the Meningitis Foundation. 17 past four. You're on the panel, Friday's panel on RNZ National. We have Anna Dean and Guy Williams uh, with us this afternoon. Now, last week we talked about childcare with National promising to create a family boost childcare tax rebate to make early childhood education more affordable. And many will know after your mortgage, childcare can be their biggest expense. RNZ interviewed uh, last week one Stephanie Fox, who said that she and her husband pay $511 a week on childcare for their two preschool children. But the issue also came up, how is early childcare not a part of the overall public education in New Zealand, but rather for profit? Well, this is Dr Sue Cherrington, the Director of the Institute for Early Childhood Studies at Victoria University in Wellington. Dr Cherrington, kia ora. Well, thank you very much for having me on the panel. No pleasure. So preschool education was once seen as a public good. What changed? Right. So, well, there's been quite a lot of change that's happened over the last 40, 45 years. Um, And some of that has been to do with the... um, the, the increased uh, amount of um, what we call education and care services, what many people in the, in the community know, know, you know, more typically as pre, um, childcare, as more and more um, parents have returned into the workforce. So, back in the you know in the late 80s, when um, and, and earlier when I was was teaching. Um, most uh, early childhood services were funded directly by by government. So when I was a kindergarten teacher, my my pay, my salary was paid directly by government, um, and the kindergarten association I worked for received a um, an operational grant to help cover the costs of providing the you know the building and the service. 
So we had a major shift in funding in the early 1990s when um, we moved to what was known as bulk funding. Um, right. And we had um, services receiving a subsidy from government as opposed to full uh, full funding. And that subsidy uh, is for a maximum of 30 hours per week for a child. Um, uh, it's a maximum of six hours a day. Um, and there are an enormous amount of um, variations depending on what service you'll see your child's in, whether it's kindergarten, childcare, or what we know as education and care, play centre, kōhanga, home-based. Um, and then there are other um, variations in the funding amount depending on whether that service has um, joined the pay parity scheme or for teachers or whether it's perhaps receiving some equity funding or it's an isolated... OK. Yeah, so various good. models there. Lots changed over the last 45 years, as you say, but very interesting to see that uh, trajectory, uh, isn't it? And there's much to say on this, so I want to bring in our panel, but I'll, one more from me, because this really jumped out, uh, Sue, and many might not know, in Aotearoa, there is no cap on fees, unlike countries such as Canada or Sweden. And I raise that because there are families out there today, listen to this, who are saying, gosh, Childcare is expensive in this country. Yeah, childcare is incredibly expensive in this country, um, and yes, it's, there is no cap on fees, and you know that's something that has, on occasion, been raised with, with the ministry. Um, one of the issues about having no cap is, um, you know, clearly services can choose how much they can can charge for their fees each week. Now, one of the things that services are not supposed to do is to charge additional fees for the 20-hour ECE component of funding, which applies only to um, um So that amount that they receive the government is supposed to cover that. Right. Work, but a lot of services have found um, some quite ingenious ways to... Um, get around that, that regulation. Okay. Now, Sue, you're breaking up just a little bit there, so uh, just turn your head a bit and uh, make sure uh, you're close to uh, the, the, the phone there. Let's bring in the panel. Anna Dean. Hello, Sue. Yeah, my mother um, was a kindergarten teacher when I was growing up, oh. and I'm familiar with the, with the work space and the, the absolute effort that the teachers go to. I mean, my question is, if these um, systems aren't in place, what is the effect for our for our young people? I know it's expensive for the parents, but if there's a lack of transparency and there's kind of, uh, you know, a, a real difference in quality of care, what does that mean as our young people get older? No. Yep, yep. So, so we know that really good quality early childhood education makes a very positive difference for, for children and that the outcomes, um, from those experiences in the early years, um, carry through into, into later life. So one of the things that's really, really important for very young children is the kind of stimulating environment that they are experiencing with nurturing, um, caring interactions from the adults in their lives, um, and the kind of serve and return interactions that the adults have with children where they're engaged often in, in rich and authentic conversations with them. And, and you can have those same conversations with babies, not just with, with older children. Um, and those kind of interactions start to really establish a very strong brain architecture that, that um, is critical in those early years. We know, you know, children, infants' brains are twice as heavy um, at the age of two as they were when they were born. And, you know, and the early years are, are the critical years for, for brain development. Right. 
for children who aren't experiencing high-quality early childhood, where it's perhaps um, chaotic or there's a lot of staff turnover, are more likely to be under stress. And again, we also know that, that stress hormones um, have an impact on children's development. So you need that so, quality environment. All right, Guy Williams. You need the quantity, yeah. Um, what, what do you suggest we do to change the system? Should we have state-funded kindergartens? What's the solution? Well, it would be state-funded early childhood education, not just for kindergartens. It's really important that no matter which kind of service a child is attending, that the, the service is, is well-resourced um, in order to be able to establish and maintain the conditions that we know are really important for quality early childhood. So some of those conditions are structural. It's around having quality um, qualified staff who, are, who, if they're in the teacher-led sector, are registered um, and certificated with a with the teaching council, it's about having good quality ratios so that the adults are not having to work with too many children. Right. Um, you know, all of those kind of yeah. things. So, but that 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 takes resourcing, uh, financial resourcing, and we need to either have that come directly from government or have really strong mechanisms in place that mean that the, the money that government intends to be spent supporting um, quality. Private providers who are getting millions of dollars of government funding, are they, are, are they quality in your minds or are some of them a bit hokey? They're, across the whole sector, so, so not just the large providers, but across the whole sector, there is a real continuum from superb quality down to some very poor quality. And one of the issues I think that we have with our system is that um, we, we review our, our services through the Education Review Office. That doesn't happen as frequently as I would like it to happen, particularly given the age of children who are, okay. who are attending. And it also doesn't, there's not enough financial um, monitoring and, and reporting required. Nice one. So, Kiora, thank you for your time there. That's Dr. Sue Sherrington there, uh, Director of the Institute for Early Childhood Studies at Victoria University. Trying to unpack some of the history on uh, why uh, early childcare is uh, not part of the overall public education uh, in New Zealand, but uh, rather for profit. Um, did your did your um, mum had a good have a good experience in her career, Anna? Did she enjoy the uh, the sector? I think she loved it, but it was yeah. incredibly hard work, yeah. and you know, having to deal with all kinds of different families and different children's issues. And but she she's fantastic at dealing with younger children. Yeah. And I've got to say that my my little boy Junior, he had a, an absolutely marvellous time at his uh, childcare centre. Just r- really rich uh, things to do every day, and lots of things. In fact, I wanted to stay there uh, for instead of going off to work, which I could have sometimes. But um, no, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Twenty six past four. Can I just say that I have filled up the feedback column here with. Uh, the topic of the day. Who would have thought you're interested in marrows? <laughs> Goodness gracious <laughs> me. I mean, you know, you can't pick it, can you? But you're all about marrows this Friday afternoon. Um, I, I can't recall when I've... I'll just, here's a couple, but we're going, going to go back to it soon. Marrows cut in half or into rings, stuffed with rice and bolognese, mixed topped with cheese, bake until marrow is tender, cheese and crispy. And another one here is... Uh, 
marrow and ginger jam, says Jane, oh. is just delicious. Mary adds, marrow recipe, you peel it, you grate it, you add spaghetti sauce, curry or soup, it adds volume and health by stealth. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Wallace, David from Dunedin here. Curried marrow is great. Fry your onions, add desired spices, also add curry leaf. Fry well, but don't burn. Throw in the marrow pieces around one inch. Turn down heat, cover. When marrow's soft, add some coconut milk, but don't overheat. Eat with rice, fresh tomato also, added with marrow, leave skin on marrow. Oh, my Ooh. gosh, Anna Dean. Yeah, thank you, everybody. <laughs> you've, you've worked us up. It doesn't stop there, I tell you. Um, I just wanted to, before we get to um, the headlines, can I just bring on this issue? Imagine this. You arrive at a restaurant for a date you arranged yesterday on a dating app, and the date never shows up. Ghosting. Not a new concept. But now dating is mostly done on apps. Many people think ghosting is increasing. Abruptly cutting off communication with someone, no explanation. And we talked about ghosting quite a bit in the office uh, yesterday. It seems anecdotally to be happening more and more. Guy Williams, what do you make of this? Are you, is, is, it, is, it, is it what you people do these days? Psych, yeah, no, nah, it is more common than you'd think, and it's psychologically brutal. And I think do it to someone in a romantic relationship, like, yeah, I can't deal with that at all. Especially if you've met the person. If it's someone you're just chatting to, fine. But if you've met face-to-face, to ghost someone is a – it's a modern – it's one of those modern pratfalls of modern communication that's brutal, I feel, for people, eh? It just seems to be so unfair to, 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 to just um, – instantly cut off communication like that? Or am I not seeing the nuances in this, Anna? Well, it can be complicated if someone yes, does of course. Um, creep you out or give you reason to want to just completely block them. That, that can happen and does happen to quite a few people, I'm sure, particularly some younger women. Um, I mean, I think it's just a symptom of our digital lives that we that we lead. You know, we're kind of open to chat and conversations at any time, and sometimes people just actually get get sick of it, and you just yeah. um, need need time out. Um, I mean, you know, any thought at any time can be transmitted, and it can get incredibly tiring. Yes, I think I think people though are increasingly impolite. I've been ghosted. I've had many friends who've been ghosted, but I've also probably ghosted people myself, to be honest. Yeah. Because, because uh, what you're going to say, Guy? No, no, no. I was just, I was just laughing. Laughing. It is, it's, it's sad. It's hard. It is sad. Yeah. Just uh, one of the modern ways of communication. Uh, have you experienced ghosting uh, in uh, your um online romance life you can get in touch with us 2101 you can email the panel at rnz.co.z or as Anna says uh, are there times where actually it's really quite warranted uh, lovely to have your company uh, we talk Wellington buses next uh, um, r- driving out an etiquette campaign uh, and someone said to me why do people always say goodbye when they disembark on an Auckland bus but on a bus if you're in Wellington they never say goodbye I want to know. You're on the panel. It's time for headlines.